Tuesday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And Chris, we're in the very last seconds of, uh, of Aquarius having a crew. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's, I, I feel like we're, we're saying goodbye to a friend. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's it's a rough one. Um, and I was my shower thoughts uh, this morning when I was <laughs> getting ready for the show and uh, sitting there sc- uh, shampooing my head and thinking. I was trying to figure out how many how many ships people have to say goodbye to because I mean, uh, admittedly, all the you know before the shuttle, all of those were uh, single serving missions. And but the astronauts that were in those ships. Uh, got to see them again in museums, and you know, I mean, Mike Collins wrote a, a little essay to uh, to Apollo 11 while he was on board the Hornet. But I was thinking, with the lunar modules, uh, you know, they'll never they'll never have another crew in them. They'll be destroyed or put in solar orbits and things. So it, it must be really tough. Not since I was trying to think of something famous where you know ships were just let go. The, the only thing I could think of was the uh, the Doolittle raids uh, off the Hornet. All those uh, all those crews that had to bail out over China and just you know let their their ships that did good service just go into the you know go into the tree line. Oh, that had to be heartbreaking to watch, you know, because you yeah. get attached to these things. Yeah, um, yeah. And as a matter of fact, have you ever seen the movie Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo? Yes, yes. You know, there's that great scene where the ruptured ducks. Uh, the ruptured duck is one that has it near and dear to my heart. I think because those guys love that aircraft, and uh, you know, of course it. Uh, uh, it crashed into the China, you know, the coast of China there after the raid. But uh, there's that scene where they're trying to get it to start, and one of the engines won't start, and uh, um, the guy, Navy guys come to push it overboard. You're just like, oh, God, you can't yeah. push it overboard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, poor Van Johnson in that. Uh, but, yeah, it's so um, – I mean, and I, you know, I'm watching it again in the, the latest uh, Midway movie. I mean, it's just it, – it, it, B-25s are just beautiful planes, and um, – you know, having to say goodbye, especially as you're watching, you know, I, I mean, their last view of it was uh, an unmanned craft heading toward its doom as they were, you know, hanging from their parachutes. So uh, that, that always must be a, a tough time saying, saying goodbye to these things. But, uh, you know, I guess you have to get used to that idea um, when, you know, from the moment they were they were building the lunar modules, uh, they they saw them you know being screwed together and all that and everything updated and changed and all that stuff is you know going into the going into the bottom of the Pacific what's left of it. Um, I I keep uh, as you're talking about this I keep thinking of the closing moments of the Spider episode on uh, from the Earth to the Moon where the, he kind of goes over why does you know certain machines maybe have a soul. Yeah, know, and uh, it's very true. Yeah, and Aquarius was you know really pushed to the outer edges. Of its uh, of its abilities, that you know, it kept three people alive instead of just two people. It had all kinds of uh, adaptations with the uh, carbon dioxide scrubbers. Uh, it traveled further than any lunar module. It went to the moon and then it came back from the moon. So that's the the furthest flying uh, lunar module ever. Um, yeah, that's a question I was going to ask you, Jim. Uh, 
So normally, uh, you know, you, you go down to the, on, on a normal mission, you go down to the moon, you come up, dock with the command module. Um, at what point would would they just let it go? Usually, if this was a normal mission out there by the moon. Yeah, yeah, they they would let it go over over the moon before they were going to fire the CSM because the less mass they had to push back toward Earth, uh, the better. So they would let it go in lunar orbit, or in some cases they would uh, use it as a, a a seismic test for the, uh, the the seismic charges that were on the ground. So they'd try to aim it at the moon and crash crash it on the moon. There's a if you go to the lunar reconnaissance orbiters um, uh, gallery page, you can see some of the locations of the crashes of some of these ascent stages. Um, one of them did in uh, Apollo 10, which is in, well, we talked about this the other day, that uh, Apollo 10's in heliocentric orbit. But uh, yeah, and other times, a lot of things they were doing were they were, uh, they were testing how good the, uh, the cooling system worked. Like on Apollo 11, they uh, simply turned on every light, every switch, every fan, uh, just had everything going, and they shut off the glycol, which is the coolant for the, uh, for the electrical system. And then when they detached the lunar module, uh, Mission Control tracked what the temperature was in the ship and how the uh, power plants were working and what systems failed so they could do a, you know, drive it till it's dead uh, uh, test of all the equipment on board. So they got, they still, even after the crew had left Apollo 11, Eagle still provided uh, data that was used for later missions. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, they're just amazing Amazing ships, and every time it's one of my favorite things. Whenever I go to any museum, just looking at their lunar module exhibits, uh, they're fascinating. I mean, you can you can see the actual LEM two at uh, the National Air and Space Museum, or whenever uh, Jennifer Labasse is finished uh, redecorating, we'll we'll see the <laughs> LEM two again. But they, I, I'm glad they moved it. They moved it up front, so it's in the uh, uh, the Heroes of the Air Gallery. That you know that that, that oh the milestones. Mile, uh, yeah, milestones yeah, of flight. Yeah, that's yeah. a cool gallery. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad it used to be. <laughs> it used to be out in front of the cafeteria at the end of the hallway, which was an okay place for it. But I think it really the, the lunar module uh, deserves a place of honor uh, just as much as any of the other uh, the other flight cal- uh, the other ones that are in the flight gallery. Um, I I like that one. I like the one that's at. Uh, you can see the one that was used in uh, from the Earth to the Moon. Actually, was used in uh, in Apollo 13 in uh, uh, Jim Lovell's dream sequence. Uh, that lem that's at uh, that's in Long Island um, uh, at the uh, at the Grove Museum. Um, oh, the John, cradle of Josh Storer's place, cradle cradle of aviation. Yes, yeah. Josh, Josh Storer's place. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a beautiful one that was uh, that was rebuilt for uh, from the Earth to the Moon. And actually, it, it went to um, if I'm I'm not confusing this. It went to Japan and and appeared in an exhibit in Japan for a while to show a, to show a moon landing. Um, but it's, that's probably one of the most complete uh, ones there. The uh, original one for Apollo 15 that was canceled, I think that's LEM, I want to say LEM 9. I'm, not, I'm doing this without a net, so I don't, <laughs> I, don't I think it's LEM 9 uh, that's hanging up in the, uh, at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, when, they, when they canceled Apollos 18 through 20, the J missions, the ones that had uh, lunar rovers and were going to be spending a longer time on the surface, uh, were, uh, all those lunar modules were uh, moved forward. And uh, the, the one that was originally scheduled for Apollo 15 now wasn't, uh, it didn't have the fuel capacity or the, you know, the weight, rest- the, the weight abilities that the, the later J models had. So 
uh, it wound up stuck at the Cape and they just put it in the museum. So it's, that's in really good shape. It's, it's hanging from the ceiling and it's, the last time I saw it, it had its hatch open. So that, uh, that's cool. An interesting thing. And you're seeing it from below too. That's which you get like a moon's eye view of the, uh, of the lunar module. So I don't know if it's going to still be there or not, but, uh, the air and space museum, uh, building on the mall where the lem where lem 2 is uh they had at one point like a um they did sort of like a cutaway oh yeah um, yeah the ascent it was, it was kind of like the simulator view you, you could look you could stamp step up and be like inside the lem yeah exactly that was really neat I mean, yeah it's, just, it's probably as close to in a lem as you're gonna get you know yeah yeah it's uh it's amazing i mean you look at pictures you think oh it's got to be cramped but then when you're standing in front of you like wow yeah this is like being in a broom closet trying to land on the moon <laughs> <laughs> now somebody told me a story and this is secondhand so just keep that in mind i know there's a few you know there's a lot of replica lunar modules out there that vary from how good they are and uh the armstrong museum has one uh and somebody told me that like years ago they went to visit it and you know they were kind of checking in and and it's you know it's kind of a smaller museum and but they were checking in and someone was like yeah if you uh you know neil's here somewhere and while they were walking around like neil just like came down the ladder of the limb like he was checking it out or something like that <laughs> you know? and they were just like holy cow they're walking to the museum and then down come the ladder comes uh you know neil and he's just like oh hi just checking it out <laughs> i wish i could remember who told me that story but yeah uh, i wish i had a camera at the time oh my gosh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> wow uh yeah it, it that's always fun i i, I enjoy you and I are both museum junkies, so it's 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 always fascinating to see how how they present it as part of a story. Um, I uh, I keep get hearing about the the Franklin Museum in Philadelphia supposedly has the, their lunar module that's outdoors is supposed to be a uh, half finished lunar module that was going to go on Apollo twenty and never did. Oh wow! But I looked I've looked at it a couple of times and either. Either they've restored it to the point of uh, unrecognizability, or I think that's made up because it just doesn't—it it doesn't look like the kind of equipment. For one thing, it's outdoors, and you, you cannot leave a lunar module outdoors; oh, it no. will rot away. Actually, there is there is a lunar module that has a, that that's on display that has a fascinating history to me that uh, it, it ties into my childhood back way way back back in the Apollo days when when the Apollos were still being launched. The uh, Kennedy Space Vin the Visitor Center, where you'd get on the bus and start taking the tour, the Visitor Center had a mock-up uh, lunar module that they had a stair stairway that would walk. You could walk up to the up to the top and look through. Instead of having a door, they had they had a glass where the hatch was, and you could look in the windows and see what a uh, what a lunar module was going to look like when it eventually landed on the moon, and it was painted white. And uh, just like all those pictures from uh, Grumman that had, you know, they'd drawn artists' uh, conceptions of how they were going to look. And I can remember going down there in like 69 and 70 and, and seeing, uh, seeing this lunar module. And there was always a line. People wanted to go see, see the lunar module. And it was out in front of the rocket garden, uh, the early rocket garden there. And um, it, would, it would take you the longest time just to get up the stairs and then to you know go down the other the other side to uh, you know just to just to have a look inside of the thing, um, that lunar module disappeared, and I didn't know what happened to it. It was in at Kennedy. I didn't know where they put it. And then I found out it wound up at the Mississippi Welcome Center in um, 
it's it's on um, I ten at, at in front of Stennis in in front of the uh, uh, the Odyssey Space Center I think that's called now the the Space Museum there and uh, they've repainted it so that it's gold and black like the way it, you know it doesn't have it doesn't have gold capped on foil on the front of it but it's painted gold because those are the colors that you associate with a lunar module. But it's the same old one, and it's it's uh, it's standing out in their parking lot, or at least it was about three or four years ago, and it was just it was like bumping into an old friend when I was uh, I was just driving through on the way to Florida. I was like, I know this one, and then I found out about the history of where the where that lem had come from. So it was just it's really neat that it was kind of a it was kind of a history maker in itself that all these people that saw the Apollo's launch when they visited the visitor center this was the lunar module that that all these people that were up and down the coast watching the uh watching the apollo's launch had seen and this is the this was the very thing that they had in their head thinking that's what a limb looks like that's going to land on the moon interesting um, yeah so it's uh it's it's fun and it's you know it's funny it's and it's right across it's right across the parking lot from where uh, fredo's uh saturn one for his un unflown mission is so i think i read did i read that correctly recently uh that's so that's the museum that fred hayes is involved with right right exactly yeah because i think they just recently moved that lem to the museum really oh wow yeah, oh, good. i thought i just i thought i remember him oh. posting about it um i don't quote me on it but i'm pretty sure they moved it to the museum now um oh well that's good news Hopefully. yeah yeah I, Hopefully indoors. It's been outside for 50 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember the particulars, but I seem to remember them moving it uh, to the facility, and, and I remember some Facebook posts on it. That's oh, that's okay. interesting. Oh, very nice. Oh, okay. I always well, like when you're driving up, uh, what is it? Is it, is it 95 or uh, 5? Or what road is it that has like the Saturn 1B? Oh, that's, that's uh, I think that's 49. I may be wrong. It's, in Missis- it just, it's also in Mississippi. It's outside yeah. of Stennis. And yeah. yeah, it's this, this squat little uh, Saturn 1B parked on the side of the road at the rest area, and you're like, wait a minute, that's a Saturn. Yeah. And you can see it for like miles. Like, it's interesting because you're like, you're kind of coming out the road. You're like, is that a rocket? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <"Whoa." laughs> yeah, that, that one's a good one. I always love, of course, the uh, the Saturn V in Huntsville is just simply amazing when you're. Yeah, uh, that's. When you're coming you know, up to the entrance. I mean, they've got one laying down, and then they've got one standing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And I know there's. I can't remember. I, I remember reading that the one standing up is like part like replica, part like test article, and some stuff like that. It's, it's yeah, a couple things yeah, it's mixed a little together, yeah. But, but boy, it you know it, they they just recently painted it, and and I got to see that, and uh, it's oh, it's impressive. I mean, that alone to go there and just see this thing mounted vertically, and then go inside the building, and there's a restored real one in there too. I mean, it, it's. Yeah, that, that that whole museum is worth that trip too. But yeah, yeah. There's something yeah. about seeing one poised for takeoff that's just pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 gorgeous. And I, I do like the fact that they're you know, that they're trying to make them more dynamic displays. I mean, especially with what's been going on with uh, with the shuttles. The shuttles are of course being displayed in their three modes of flight. One is uh set up for the landing, which is Discovery, which is now our our, our buddy Jennifer's uh She's got the keys to it. She's in charge of in charge of that display, but it's gonna it's set in landing mode, and of course Atlantis being set in in space mode, so it's got its doors open and it has uh, astronauts floating outside. Um, but the big one out in um, uh, out in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Endeavor is going to be shown in launch mode, and they actually are building a a, a gantry for it and uh, having the uh, the final. Uh, uh, the, the two solid rocket boosters and the uh, external tank 
is is out there so it's going to be displayed as it was ready for launch and, and i do like i mean it's very unusual to see them in a vertical mode but uh but it's cool so that's going to be a, a really neat addition to the la skyline someday soon yeah exactly that'll be pretty uh, cool the now since we're talking about those the other you know i i everybody seems to have a redstone rocket with a with a uh, mercury capsule on top and some some of them are really not very good the one the one in front of the gate at uh at kennedy space center is a really bad uh boilerplate on top it doesn't look it doesn't look very much like a <laughs> like a mercury redstone but it, it's there um but my favorite uh titan uh there's two I, I like the the titan at the at the rocket garden in kennedy but the one in uh, hutchison uh, where you can stand underneath it that is awesome that's just a uh, a beautiful thing. Wow. Um, yeah. So I've uh, got to love those early rockets that are restored yeah. and preserved. That's, that's, that's really cool. And it's, you know, they're complex. You, know, you would think like, well, maybe it'd be easier to restore than like an airplane or something. But there's a lot of complex engineering that went on in building those. I mean, so yeah. it, it, restoring one is not easy. And it's structurally there. I mean, they're not built, they're not, they're not built to be out there very long. Um, I forget someone posted recently on space hipsters. They were showing that, uh, they were reinflating the uh, Atlas D that they have outside, and the, the Atlas is simply a uh, aluminum skin that they fill up with liquid, liquid oxygen and fuel and light it. So, uh, but it's it's extremely the the outside of it is like maybe ten sheets of aluminum foil. It's very very <laughs> thin. So the, he had a video of them reinflating. They basically plug a compressor into the into the rocket and fill it up with air if, if that pressure is a little low i think it's filled to like eight eight psi but uh just a you know it's an interesting restoration job it's like oh the uh, the atlas is getting flat so we got to go re you know the rocket yeah <laughs> yeah um but it's it's fine i don't know if we talked anything about this minute but this is a there's an interesting there's two two little things of interest in in this that, that i thought were uh, one of them they were talking about how uh, Swigert was checking on the batteries. He wasn't sure. That, uh, we had talked about this previously that the pyro batteries were needed to fire the explosives that would shoot the uh, parachutes up into the air in a, in a sequence uh, during, you know, after reentry, just before a splashdown. And those batteries needed to work. They basically work like um, if you've ever used a model rocket engine. All they do is they light up a, a nichrome wire that uh, heats up and sets off a charge that will blow the um, the, the little canisters they're they're like little bazookas or mortars that are mounted on top of uh the set uh, the apollo command module that uh that fire the fire these canisters that have uh parachutes in them uh it, it doesn't work that much different from those uh, those little poppers that you get at uh at new year's that you know throw confetti up instead of confetti it's just shooting um uh, parachutes but it did need just enough power to make sure those nichrome wires would light up and fire off the thing so uh mission accomplished with the uh, with draining you know using the lunar module batteries to uh, to power up the command modules batteries um the other thing is uh, uh jim lovell accidentally taking left seat which is of course the pilot's seat on the command module but it's swigert's job to do re-entry so um jim lovell gets out of his seat and he gets gets over there um do you ever have a problem getting on the wrong side of the plane when you're getting on, Chris? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, when we were, uh, you know, early on in flight training, uh, there was probably some, some, you know, where am I going to sit? Where are you going to sit? And the, uh, uh, in flight training, of course, like, like so I learned to fly in like a Piper Cherokee. 
um, the one I flew, oh, he had brakes on the one side. So ah. um, it was pretty obvious the instructor wanted to have brakes. Uh, so he would sit in the right seat uh, in that Cherokee, in that specific one. But uh, not normally, you know, maybe in the tower there were a few times where we're both equally qualified and we'd come in and just be like, where are you, you know, do you want ground or, you know, tower or what do you want to do? <laughs> uh, and it was more just a, you know, it, like I didn't look at it as a, a snub if if uh, Joe or somebody wanted tower and I took ground. Or it, it just didn't matter. It, is, there a, is there a hierarchy in that? I mean, do you start with, um, you know. So, um, so when you start in the tower, uh, the first thing you, I'm going to speak to my experience. I mean, because okay. I don't want to, you know, upset somebody if, if theirs uh, was different. Uh, but you start off with something called flight data, clearance, delivery, and weather. Um and that's where you start. You're not controlling any actual aircraft. Um, it gets you comfortable with being in the situ- in the uh, the environment. You know, you're dealing with delivering clearances to different airports to the aircraft. Uh, you know, updating weather, things like that. And then once you get uh, good there, uh, they take you to ground. And there, of course, you're you're controlling airplanes on the ground. Uh, usually, um, how they do it is there's a dual plug-in. Uh, so there's an instructor plug-in um, that they can plug their headsets into, and basically, if you're saying the wrong thing, they key their mic, and yours goes dead, and and theirs uh, is the one that talks, and they give their you know in case you're you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, but after you get really comfortable on ground, it also helps you get comfortable with the airport in general, uh, all the different taxiways and things like that, which sound really tough. In certain airports, there's a lot. I mean, the airport I had, we had three runways. Um, but you start going to some place that's really busy with a ton of different taxiways, you know, it gets it gets really really hectic. But you got to learn all the connectors and things like that. Um, and then after you're comfortable with that, you move over to tower, and that's or local, depending on what you uh, call it. But that's the real deal. That's talking to airplanes uh, in the sky, uh, landing and taking off, and um, you know things like that. So. Uh, and then there's radar. Radar is, of course, the approach and departure uh, controllers. So um, you kind of look at it as a uh, kind of a cone. You know, it all starts at your airport and works its way out. So you've got, you know, weather and then ground. You know, think about how you want to go out on a flight. You're going to talk to ground for or, uh, weather first, get your clearance, go over to ground, and then go over to tower, and then on the way out, talk to departure. You know, departure, so that's. Yeah. That's kind of the progression that uh, that I followed, and then uh, I'm trying to think, but you know that, but there was never a, a mix-up in the, you know, in, in our seats necessarily. Just kind of like, hey, what do you want to do? Um, I will say, uh, in, in a bigger airport, you would have a rotation, like you would actually know where you're coming into. But yeah, um, I will say one thing that carried over is, is uh, Jack Swaggart putting the uh, the tape note up for uh, a reminder of not not to yeah. cut loose. So we actually did that in the tower. Um, of course, we weren't cutting a lunar module loose up there, but uh, um, the biggest thing that I remember us using that type of, of reminder for was if we had trucks on the runway. Um, oh, okay. Everybody always talks about, is ATC a, a crazy stressful job? You know, on a normal day, it's not. Like I've said before, if you're if you're crazy stressed every day going to work, you, you, either your work is really that insane or you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you're you're cautious and you're careful, but but you know, stressful. I don't, I don't think that's normally the case on a normal day in the tower. Um, when there's emergencies, when there's, um, 
you know, maybe some crazy weather. Oh, you know, yeah, that gets stepped up a bit. But when there's uh, when there's people on the runway, that's where I felt the most stress. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, I was in Indiana, so we had blowing snow. You know, we were up by the lake, so um, you had reduced visibility. You know, you had reduced traction on vehicles. You had, you know, instrument approaches coming into runways that have people plowing snow off of them. Um, so we had these, we actually had uh, notes. We would put up a Hot Wheels car or a red car or a note or something up on the console or as a reminder of, oh, the red truck is up there. Do we have people on the runway, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and that was just a, you know, there are other systems to check that, but that was just a last ditch, you yeah, know, don't forget, don't forget there's, yeah, there's, there's some guy, that, yeah, there's yeah some don't guy forget the, yeah, that John's out there in, in a truck plowing snow that, that you don't want to put a jet on him. So, um, so that, you know, when, he, when I saw that, um, in this clip when we were preparing for this, this episode, I, that was immediately I went to was, man, I remember doing that kind of stuff and you'd kind of make an announcement in the tower, you know, we'd say like trucks coming out and you'd put the truck out, you know, and everybody knew <laughs> that, okay, like the, you know, we've got personnel on the runway and you're a bit more, I will, I won't lie. You're a bit more on edge, you know, when you've got people now, uh, out there in the runway environment. Yeah. <laughs> Or if you have people in the LEM, I guess that's what it is. Or people in the LEM, yeah, Don't exactly. Jettison. The yeah. nice thing is I wasn't going to jettison a runway and let John go out in it or something. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. But, but it, you know, yeah, there's – especially, you know, you look at what they're doing. They're flipping a lot of switches. They're not they're not flipping the normal switches they would be at this at this part either. This isn't what they trained for. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so they're, they're flipping a lot of switches out of order and out of sequence. Um so there's a lot going on in that cockpit. Yeah, and there's no interlock. I mean, if he had hit that jettison the lem thing at the wrong time, uh, he would have killed himself because you know the, the you have to you have to close the lid on the, on the lem first. Right, right. Um, so yeah, he wasn't going to expose himself to space. Um, but still, yeah, I, and you can imagine how punchy they must have been all, all getting because there's no way. How are you going to sleep in 38 degree cabins? Um, yeah, it's yeah. just an interesting thing and. At least according to Lost Moon, that that is that is an accurate thing. This is an add-on for the uh, uh, for the movie, so good good thinking on Jack Swagger's part. <laughs> um, well, we are uh, we just we end this we end this minute with the uh, the jettisoning of uh, of Aquarius. So we'll we'll have to say goodbye to Aquarius tomorrow. But uh, that's that's the end of Aquarius for us here. Uh, well, listen, uh, it's it's always fascinating as we're getting down. Oh, my gosh, we're down to 13 days now. This is the 13th final wow. episodes. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll get everybody in that we're trying to we're trying to fit in. And I'm, I'm hoping I, I know in the past we've we've had to move schedules and things to get some of the folks around. Um, I'm hoping we can do this all at once. If we I just want to let people know in advance, if we do have a chance to get other people We'll either add episodes at the very end because we have some. Uh, we're not going to go over the credits, but we we may add some uh, episodes toward the end, or we may hold for a little bit just to make sure we get the uh, the, the right folks together that that we really want to uh, let you hear. So uh, we'll be working on that in the future. Uh, if you do have some thoughts about uh, the show so far, uh, we're always interested in hearing from you on social media. Check us out on Facebook at uh, Apollo Thirteen Minutes Mission Control, or on Twitter, of course, at Apollo Thirteen Minutes. You know the rest of the drill on this and where to find our stuff out there on uh, on Apple Podcasts and things. So we won't go through that today. But uh, we will see you here tomorrow as it looks like we're uh, coming up on loss of signal in about 30 seconds. So join us here Wednesday on the Apollo 13 Minute.